0: Go out from Babylon, flee from Chaldea, declare this with a shout of joy, proclaim it, send it out to the end of the earth, say the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. They did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He made water flow for them from the rock. He split the rock and the water gushed out. There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord does indeed stand forever. Let's pray and ask for the Lord to help us understand his word. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for giving us your word today. And we pray, Lord, that through it we would see the glory of your son, your beloved servant, Jesus Christ, that our faith and our hope might be in him and not in ourselves. I pray that we would hear as you have commanded us to do in this passage. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. One of my uh, friends is a gifted drummer, but he's. More than a gifted drummer, he's actually a, a talented and trained drummer. He, he was very gifted at this thing that he did, but he worked really hard to be a really good drummer. And he was so trained uh, that at times we would be hanging out together with music, playing in the background. And we could be working on something or talking or doing almost anything, and he would stop us all of a sudden and he would say, whoa, whoa, wait, did you hear that? And I'd say, hear what? He'd say, did you hear what the drummer just did? And I would say, no, I don't. what did the drummer just do? he said, well, the drummer changed the time signature from 4-4 to 7-8 while the rest of the band was playing in the 4-4 time signature. And he would say, rewind it. And he would show me and, and, and help me hear how the drummer changed. Now, it's hard for me to do that now. I don't have the training to be able to do that for you now. But it was amazing to hear that at various times, that he could hear a drummer change the time signature when the rest of the band didn't. And it was always interesting because he would go back and he would say, now, let's let's try to find out when he would come back in and when the rest of the band would all be together. And it would sound wonderful. It would sound amazing to hear this, to, to, to have your ears so trained to hear those things. Well, I think... That oftentimes we think that hearing the good news of Jesus Christ, hearing the grace of God, is natural to us. When nothing could be farther from natural to us. It's actually very hard for us to hear the grace of God and to understand it. We have to have our ears trained to hear it. The reason for it is because our sinful hearts operate on a works righteousness Basis because we're sinful. We think we have to earn our salvation from God. And so our normal operating procedure is to just operate as if we don't need grace. And so when God talks about grace, we fail to hear it. We need to be trained to hear the, the, uh, the grace of God. The hard thing about it is that training is hard. It's hard to go to school, it's hard to learn. But as Christians, there's a lot of joy, and actually all of our joy is connected to this, training our ear to hear the grace of God. And I think Isaiah helps us with that today. This is part of our training as he talks about the grace of God and he he plays the notes of God's grace for us. We're in, once again, Isaiah in this fifth cycle that began in chapter 40. And what God is doing in this cycle is he is finally proclaiming the eternal answer, the ultimate answer to his people's biggest problems. And he says, ultimately, you know, I'm going to get rid of the Assyrians. I'm going to get rid of the Babylonians. I'm eventually going to get rid of um, uh, of the Persians. And then after that, I'm going to get rid of the, the Greeks and then the Romans, that's going to come later. He says, I'm going to deal with all of these people, but how is he going to do it? He's going to do it by making his servant rise up to save his people. But I want you to remember as we jump into this chapter again, because something amazing is going to happen in chapter 49. There's a big shift that happens. So we're leading up to that big shift, we're building up to that big shift, but remember how this cycle began. What did he say in chapter 40? God said to Isaiah, say to my people, comfort, comfort. God is giving us his comfort. And his comfort comes through his servant. I want to look at this passage, uh, these two chapters in three ways. First, we're going to look uh, at how Yahweh dispatches with Babylon. Then we're going to look at Yahweh turning his attention to Israel. And then we're going to look at uh, Yahweh's grace to Israel. But the first thing he does is he very quickly dispatches with Babylon. I didn't even read this section because of how um, quickly God does this. Uh, Now we saw, this was three weeks ago now, we saw in chapter 46 that God was degrading the idols of the Babylonians. And if you remember, what did the Babylonian idols do? What were they like? Well, we said that the Babylonian idols had to be carried. They were images made of gold or metal of some sort, precious metals and wood. They actually had to be picked up and carried. And that is the nature of idols. Every false god is so weak that they can't carry themselves. They have to be carried. And God says, I'm not like that. I am the one who carries. The true God carries. And he says, because I love you, I will carry you. I don't need you to carry me. That's the nature of of what a real God is like. who said, that's what the Babylonian gods are like. Well, uh, John Calvin famously said that our hearts are idol factories. That our hearts are constantly making idols. We're we just constantly putting out these idols and and we're worshiping false gods all the time. Well, if that's the case, we are literally carrying around all of these idols that we're constantly worshiping When God says, if you trust in me, then I carry you. God is better than any of the idols that we make. So give yourself to Yahweh. Well, he continues the degrading of Babylon in chapter 47. uh, because, Because God, and we need to remember this. This is kind of the main point that I want you to hear. or The main point and the first point. That God is not impressed by the things of the world. We need to understand how Babylon saw herself. Look in chapter 47, look in verse 1. Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. What God is doing is, He's saying, this is how Babylon sees herself. In verse 5, He says again, Sit in silence, go into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans. That's Babylon. For you shall no more be called the mistress of the kingdoms. Babylon was very impressed with herself. And all of the people of Babylon were very impressed with Babylon. Babylon was the seat of political power, was the seat of the economy, it was the the seat of all kind of technological advances, it was the seat of all academic learning, it was the place where if you wanted to be somebody, you had to go to Babylon, you had to be from Babylon, you had to be a Babylonian. In comparison, Babylon would be like New York City, Washington, D.C., Los Angeles, Silicon Valley, Seattle, New Orleans, and Las Vegas, kind of all rolled into one. It was, it was a very cosmopolitan city, the likes of which we have a hard time imagining. Well, I want you to understand the way that God sees them. God is not impressed by Babylon and all of her greatness and all of her technological advancement, and all of the wonderful things, and all of her wealth and majesty and all that. God could care less about any of those things. But she is very impressed with herself. Look at what she, how she describes herself. Look in verse 7, 47:7. 7. She says, or God says, You said, I shall be mistress forever, meaning I will be the one that everyone wants to be like. The city, or the people of Babylon build themselves up and they say everyone will want to be us. Everyone will want to be part of who we are. I will be the mistress. Basically saying I can seduce anyone that I want to come into my city to be a part of me. And then she says this in verse 8. Now therefore hear this, you lover of pleasure. There, that's what she felt. she's like. Who sits securely, who say in your heart, I am and there is no one beside me. In Hebrew, that I am is Yahweh. You see what Babylon does. She sets herself up and she says, I am. Meaning, I am God. I am the great one. I am strong enough to determine my own future. I am strong enough to be the greatest that there ever was. And no one will take that from me. But God says, you know what? You're gonna, what's going to happen to you, Babylon? Very quickly, actually overnight, literally overnight, you can read about it in Daniel. She has all of her glory, all of her beauty, all of her power, everything that was wonderful about her taken away. God's going to dispatch with her very quickly. Now, from this picture of the destruction of Babylon, I think you you can learn a couple of things. We need to not listen to the notes of the world as they attempt to seduce us with the things that the Lord doesn't care for. I think this is especially important for you young people. When I say young people, I mean anyone younger than me, okay? I'm 43, so younger than me. Um, We are growing up in a world that is obsessed with fame and notoriety. And you need to hear that the most famous, the wealthiest influencer that the world thinks is just the most wonderful thing in the world, all they're doing on their social media platforms and all the things that they're putting out there in the world, they're window dressing souls that desperately need a Savior. They need Jesus. No amount of fame or money or likes or followers will satisfy you. Now, parents, as much as we want to strive for the very best for our children, we need to remember that their soul is more important than their material well-being, than their education, than their sports stats, than their ACT scores. One day, our children will stand before God and will have to give an account for their life. And how they scored on the ACT or how many touchdowns they scored or how many books they read will not matter. And that goes for all of us. One day, all of us will stand before God and we will have to give an account for our lives, for every single thing that we said or did or thought. And we will not be able to point to our performance or any record that we have, any standard of man, any level of success as a firm foundation to stand before God. If we do, we will be quickly dispatched like Babylon is. Because God is not impressed and will not be swayed by any performance of man. The only thing that will matter in that day is the performance of Jesus Christ for you. It's the most important thing. That's the only thing ultimately that matters. The performance of Jesus for you. So we need to hear this note and not be seduced by the world. God says I don't care about the things of the world. So don't be seduced by the world. The second thing, and we see this in 48 verses 1 through 8, Yahweh turns his attention now to Israel. He's like, I'm done with Babylon Let's look at Israel. And who is Israel? Israel, it's his people. It's the Old Testament church. And what does he do? Look in verse 8. He says, hear this, O house of Jacob. Hear this. Why? He commands his people to listen, to hear. Why? Well, why does God make commandments? He commands these things because they're not listening to him. They're not paying attention. We need to be commanded to listen because we don't listen very often. And that's basically God's primary complaint in these verses. In 1 and 2, he says, who are called by the name of Israel. Another way to say that is they call themselves by the name Israel, who came from the waters of Judah. Basically say, who came from my land, who swear by the name of the Lord and confess The God of Israel. And then look down at verse 2. For they call themselves after the holy city, and they stay themselves in the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts is His name. But that middle part that I just left out is the most important thing. They do all of those things, but God says, but not in truth or right. What's the main problem with Israel? Israel, God's people, are talkers. They talk, 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 talk. And what do they talk about? Oh, well, they profess. Faith in Jesus or faith in Yahweh. They profess to be God's people, but God says they do that, but not in truth or right. All they are is talkers. They're empty talkers. They're empty swearers. They say these things, but it doesn't mean one bit. It doesn't make one bit of difference to them. Talk, 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 talk. They profess, fest, 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 fest. But it doesn't matter to them. It's just a bunch of empty talk. I remember uh, a man that I took some classes from, some distance classes. Ronald Nash was teak- teaching uh, one of these classes. And he talked about his Lutheran family members. Uh, and if you don't know anything about the Lutheran church, uh, some of y'all do. But the Lutheran church, very high on catechism, on learning, very rigorous study, things that they require of their members um, and, and all of these things. And Dr. Nash grew up in a Lutheran church in the Midwest, Uh, And he talks about how rigorous all of his family members were and how religiously they participated in the life of the Lutheran church and everything that they did, everything that they learned. And they would go to, and if you don't know about the liturgy of the Lutheran church, it is a high church liturgy with a lot of parts and pieces to it. And they had to recite creeds and say all of these things in church. And it was so German that most of the time they did it in German. And they really would say it with gusto, with vigor. They would really say it, but they didn't believe it. He said, none of my family members were believers. They were atheists. They only went to church for the rhythm that it provided for their life. They only went to church because it was their tradition to do that. And that's just what you did. They talk, 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 but it didn't mean anything to them. That's what God is saying that his people are like. Now, here's what I want you to see. Now, we expect for Babylon to not believe in God. We expect for the world to act like the world. But what happens when we see that the church is acting just like the world? God is saying to his bride that she is acting just like the world acts. And what he's doing is he's holding up a mirror to his bride, the church. And he's saying, do you see all of your flaws? Do you see what you're really like? God is righteous, but his bride is far from righteous. So a matter of fact, you see this in verse 8, that God says, I knew that you would deal treacherously, that you would not deal rightly with the information that you have, and that from before you were born, you were called a rebel. The name Jacob, who Israel is called by over and over here, Jacob means deceiver. God says, that's what my people are. That's what they're like. Now, we know that God is going to dispatch with Babylon because they're the world. But what happens when we find that the world is acting just or the church is acting just like the world? What should God do with his people when they are acting just like the world? Well, they get wrath. God's people should get wrath as well. And I would argue that this is the very thing that makes listening for the grace of God so hard. We have to hear these disconsolate notes being played at the same time. And these are the two notes that are banging up against each other. The notes of God's holiness and His people's unholiness. But it's actually more personal than that. And it's much more dangerous for us than that. Because you and I need to see that we are the ones... That are playing the notes that are going up against God. We are the one playing the bad notes. We are the ones that are rebelling against God, challenging God and His righteousness with all of our unrighteousness. Let me make it more personal. You are unrighteous and are playing those notes before an unholy God, or before a holy God. What do you and I deserve? We deserve the wrath of God. That's what Babylon got, gets. We need to hear that note before we go on to hear the note of the grace of God. Do you understand what you really deserve? Well, in verse 9, and this is good news, God changes how He's addressing Israel. His attention is still on His people, but He doesn't dispatch with them. Look at what He says in verse 9. He shows them His grace. Verses 9 through 22, he says, For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Instead of God pouring out his wrath on his people, who deserve it, He says, I defer my anger. I'm putting my anger away. I am restraining myself. You deserve wrath, but I am holding my wrath back. And in verse 10, he says this interesting thing. He says, behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. Well, why not refine them as silver? Because silver, if you refine silver, you heat heat up the silver really, really hot so that all of the impurities in the silver are burned out. And all you have is pure silver. And what God is saying here, I have refined you, but not as silver. Because if he were to start refining us as silver to take all of the dross, all of the impurities out, there would be no silver left because we're all dross. God says, I couldn't refine you that way because there's nothing good in you to refine. You need something else. He says, I have tried you in the furnace of affliction, but for my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. My glory I will not give to another. So why does God withhold his wrath from his people? Why does he instead give us his grace? Well, he tells us why. He says he does it for his name's sake. Did you see that? Did you see how many times he said he chose his grace for his name's sake? For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it. Behold, I, uh, or for my, verse 11, for my own sake. For my own sake, he says it even twice there. Driving the point home, why does he show grace? It's not because you deserve it. He does it for his sake. Because God's glory is his greatest thing that he is after. God is here to spread his glory on earth. And guess what? Saving you spreads the glory of God. Do you get that? You are so bad that God saving you means He is that much better. God saves for His glory. He will not share His glory. And this is it once one of the hardest things for us to grasp, but also one of the most important things for us to grasp. It is because of the greatness of God, because of His majesty, because of His fame that He withholds His anger god 's motivation to show his people or show his people mercy is not anything in his people and that 's actually really, really good because if God is only showing you mercy because you earn it, then you will not earn it that 's what Paul says in romans he says if you if you think that you 've earned it it 's not something that it 's not grace anymore it's your pay it's the hard work that you 've done, but you can 't work hard enough to attain to the, the, the salvation or the grace of God. But because you can never attain to it, God says, I'm going to save all of my elect. And he stakes his glory on it. He says, if one of my elect isn't saved, if one of my people isn't saved, then God says, my glory will be diminished. Well, God will not allow his glory to be diminished. And therefore he will save all of his elect. It's good news for us. The glory of God, His motivation for saving us. And then in verses 12 and 14, He says this again. He says, Listen up. Listen. Now, notice the difference between verse 12 and also verse 48.1. Look at 12, verse 12. Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, whom I called. I am He. I am the first and I am the last. Look who's talking now. God is the one who's talking before. It was his people who were talk, 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 talk. And God says, it doesn't matter how much you talk or how much you profess. What ultimately matters is what God says. God says, listen, you might call yourself by my name, but that doesn't matter. What really matters is that I call you by my name. What really matters is that I know you. That's the most important thing. And God says, I know you, and I call you by my name. And there's a subtle shift that happens here. In verses 12 uh, through 16, it's God who's talking. And he's saying, This is, he's saying all of these things, and he begins to talk about his servant. He says, He's talking about one person in verse 14, the Lord loves him. Uh, that's That's one man. He says, I love him. And he talks about that man coming and saving his people from the arm of the Babylonians and Chaldeans and and all of these things. And he kind of goes on and on talking about this man and what he's going to do. And the point here is this, is that that could be Cyrus. Yeah, and Cyrus does save God's people from the Babylonians and Chaldeans. That could be Isaiah who is proclaiming this message. But something even greater, I think, is happening there because look at the end of verse 16. God has been talking, God has been talking, and now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit, all of a sudden, in, in this passage, the servant begins to talk. This is an important thing for us. It's as if God is saying, I'm going to put my spirit on my servant and his words are my words. His work is my work. And that's the whole point of the fifth cycle of Isaiah, that the servant of the Lord is coming to save God's people. And God is saying that I am gracious to Israel. I am gracious, gracious to the Old Testament church and the New Testament church through a person. And that person is Jesus Christ. God actively sends his servant into the world. He does it to save his people, yes. But how does God save his people from their sins? God doesn't just ignore it. He doesn't just turn around so that he doesn't see it. God actually punishes the sin of his people. Well, how is God's grace completed? Well, we're going to find out in the coming chapters because it's through the suffering servant of God that God deals with the sin of His people, that God pours His wrath out on another so that His people will not have to face His wrath. We need to train our ears to listen to God's grace, to not merely talk and profess, but to listen to God's grace. His love for you, a sinner, at the end of, of um, the high priestly prayer uh, where Jesus is praying to his father. These are the words that he says, verses 20 through 26, uh, John 17, 20 through 26. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us God has showed his grace to his people, his great love. Listen to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us this word today and we pray that you would help us to not just be mere talkers or professors, but to be those that listen to Jesus Christ, who obey him. Father, we need help to do this by your grace. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to close by singing our final hymn, marvelous grace of